Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Content for this episode was recorded on Wednesday, September 22, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Spencer Toder, a Democratic candidate running for U.S. Senate representing Missouri. Spencer is one of a handful of Democrats and Republicans running for the seat being vacated by current Missouri Senator Roy Blunt. Spencer is CEO of Atrial Innovations, a startup medical device company, a real estate broker, and a consultant at Confluence Realty Advisors in St. Louis. Spencer, welcome to Democracy on the Move, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. So let's talk about political philosophy before we dive in really deeply here. Um, As a U.S. Senator, you can't do anything by yourself. You have to convince 99 other senators to go along with your ideas. And then there's the House of Representatives with 435 members. So uh, can you comment on what your general approach will be in in wrestling with this monster that we all call the U.S. Congress? Yeah, so I think the, the challenges that we face as a society and as a country are very much uh, embedded in the structure of our democracy. Unfortunately, there are things like the filibuster that are not part of our constitution that have made it significantly harder to govern. Uh, and there are things like gerrymandering that that have made it even harder to hold people accountable. And so I think what's most important once, once I get to the Senate is to make sure we pass any type of voting rights legislation that still hasn't been passed at that point that allows uh, every individual in our country to be ensured that if they're a voting age, that their voice is being heard, that their vote is counting, and that they are in a representative district that makes sense. If you if you look at a lot of the districts, uh, congressional districts in particular, you notice that they are shaped like shapes that they do not teach you in elementary school. Um, they are shaped not in no uniform way, and and we end up packing districts and and moving people around and finding ways to to make it harder to hold people accountable. And so, I think that. When, we, when someone is able to create terrible policy or vote in a way that there's no accountability and they do not risk losing their job as a congressperson, uh, that, there's no reason for them not to do the thing that is most drastic and extreme. And it actually promotes that if they are going to win a primary and guarantee a general win. So as far as my political theory, it's I need to get to office so we can start making these changes to their structural and then once we've made those structural changes, a lot of this will sort itself out. We won't have the same extremism that we have now. Um, we will find a more conscionable center because there'll be repercussions for policy that makes people's lives worse. There just aren't right now. We'll get to structure in a minute because that's, that's a really great topic to talk about, particularly in the area of voting rights. But uh, just on the outside right here, um, people are going to ask this. So I'm going to ask it right now. Your age is what, 35, 36 right now? 36, yeah. 36. So um, the person you're proposing to replace, Roy Blunt, is 71. And um, so basically at this point, you're, um, I guess you would call it a millennial. You're basically half his age. Now, the obvious disadvantage is that you will be accused of not having experience. Um, Now, of course, considering how far off the rails our current political discourse has become, uh, that may actually turn out to be an advantage. But still, you've held no political office, so you are a bit green, politically speaking. Can you walk us through how you plan to address the issue of age and your lack of political experience? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I think one of the most 
interesting things that I got to when I started. One of the most interesting things that I thought about in answering this question was, yes, the average age of uh, the age of Roy Blunt is, I think, 78. And the average age of a politician is in the early 70s. But the average age of the people represented in America is 38. And so I'm much closer to being of the age of the people being represented than the people doing the representation. Um, And so if you look, if you look at people whose experience may be similar to mine, it happens to be more of the popular than it would be for a Roy Blunt or, or someone who's got a little bit more gray hair, although this process has given me some. (laughs) Um, But, but I would say that my experience and what I've been doing, and I would say that it's something that I don't think there's another candidate uh, running that they can claim this is I've worked hand in hand with tradesmen, with scientists, with doctors, with Republicans, with Democrats, with independents, with apolitical people for my entire working career. And I think that there's something about what it takes to solve problems and to be an entrepreneur and to, and to grow businesses and to deal with interpersonal issues with other people you're working with that you don't get as an attorney, you don't get uh, in politics, you don't get if you've just spent your entire life in politics. It's just, it's, it's a very different world. And, and I think that that's actually a huge benefit because when I, when I tell people who I've known for years that I'm running for office and they say, well, Spencer, there's already a lot of Republicans running. And I said, well, I'm running as a Democrat. And they say, you're a what? <laughs> I said, well, it, it, and, and that's kind of it, right? Is that a lot of the values that we all support are the same values. We just talk about these things differently and we use different rhetoric when we're on a political, uh, a political show. But if we, if we really break it down, everyone wants better education for their kids. Everyone wants safer cities and counties and rural areas. Everyone wants less suicide. Everyone wants cleaner air and water. These aren't fundamentally different across the board. We disagree with how we get there and, and we disagree with the words we use, but ultimately the policies that I support have been very popular amongst Republicans and amongst people who tend to vote for these policies, but not politicians that that support them. So let's talk about how you've connected or how you are connecting with the people of, uh, of Missouri in the Midwest in general. In fact, I lifted a quote from your campaign website that says, no one should have to start out on a tilted playing field. We need a government that works for us fairly and equally. So they got me curious. I mean, you have a sense that the playing field is tilted, that there is not a strong sense of fairness and equality. Can you elaborate more on where you get this sense and how do you think it's affecting the lives of the people in Missouri who are, who are your potential constituents? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's no better uh, indication of how broken our society is currently than in how little uh, we trust what the government is doing regarding COVID. Um, you've got folks who don't trust the government enough to get a shot when the government says, please get a shot. And you've got folks who say the government isn't mandating that other people get a shot and my life is still affected, even though I got a shot. And and so we've got these different perspectives of people. And in the end, it all comes down to trust. And so you've got folks who have been told a thousand times that the government was going to be there for them and wasn't. You've got folks who have been told a thousand times the government will never be there for you, and it also wasn't. And, and you've got people who are hurting for a lot of different reasons. You've got so many people in medical debt. You've got so many people in student debt. You've got so many people who have been victims of predatory lending or who got out of high school and someone gave them a credit card and said, have fun, 
and they're they're still paying it down. And these are all times where regulation and leadership could have solved a lot of these issues, and we just haven't been there. We haven't provided a good enough education for people to have high-paying jobs, or we just haven't regulated that people have to pay enough for people to afford to live. Mm-hmm. And, and so we we live in this in this country where so many people have been hurting so much and no one trusts anyone because they've been hurt. And I think the conversation between personal freedom and a functional society is really what we should be having is, is personal freedom is important. But the reason why people feel personal freedom is so important is because they don't think anyone else is looking out for them. And, and I, I really believe that. I think that if, if everyone believed that they could trust the CDC and, and Joe Biden and, former president Trump, if people agreed, believed that they could trust all of those and they were all saying the same thing, we'd, we'd be out of this mess. Mm-hmm. But they can't because we've wronged so many people so many times. And so it really is about building trust in communities and making sure people know that the way I'm campaigning by by trying to get into communities and, and working and helping people, by and we've helped a half dozen people get health insurance in the last month or so. We've, we've uh, we put on an Afghan refugee supply drive that's raised over $50,000 and filled two storage containers full of supplies. We've gotten the word out about the child tax credit to over 600 people who didn't know that they would have received it if they hadn't signed up and found out, out through our website. I mean, people, people get very upset and they say, how do I know you're not going to you're not just going to be fake promises and go to office and, and be like everyone else. And then the point is, is I'm not campaigning like everyone else. We're trying to help people now. And that's why I'm running is to help people. And so the goal is to take the next year plus and, and make sure people know and, and experience that. And they know that there's someone who does care about them. Uh, Cause I think that's, what's missing most is that empathy. Well, um, do you sometimes think it might be too late? I mean, there's a strong sentiment that has evolved rapidly into a sense that um, we need to jettison the government altogether and start over. I mean, witness the events of January 6th, where a lot of people, insurrectionists basically, were ready to shred the Constitution right then and there and bring street justice into the U.S. Capitol. And the problem is that many in this country embrace a sort of, and I, pardon the expression, a fascist sort of perspective on government uh, because they have been, I believe, uh, led to think in absolute and unyielding terms insofar as what this country needs to put itself back on track, whatever that track is. So my personal fear is that a great many of these people that are increasingly coerced by you know, extremist perspectives on certain media channels can no longer be reached. So how do you plan to reach these people that have already, in a sense, already gone that distance? Boy, we, we could do 10 more shows just on that topic. Um, it, it's so important and you really are digging into the most important elements. And I think for me, one, five years ago, you wouldn't have said that. Six years ago, you wouldn't have said that. No. And so in six years, we've gotten to where we are now. And January 6th, 6th itself was in many ways preventable. And and I would say that, you know, had the had the Capitol Police been prepared, had Trump allowed the National Guard to be there, had they put the fences up that for some reason they protect everything else with 10 layers of fences, but they didn't protect the the place that needed to be protected, you know, that would have been a vocal minority that was obnoxious and and shouldn't have been there, but it wouldn't have been what it was, which was one of the greatest disgraces in the history of our country. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a very vocal minority that has 
become emboldened and is getting louder. And I think the best thing we can do to silence that is to find ways to build trust Mm -hmm. and build coalitions against folks who do want fascism, who do want that this angry authoritarian anarchy, if you will. And it is, it's, it's having someone at the top who says whatever they want and then having everyone else just do whatever they want. And that's not a society. Um, I think it's important to look at every other country that's industrialized, that's not going through the same division that we're going through. And they're led by people who lead full stop who lead. They're led by people who lead with empathy, who lead with scientists, with scientific reasoning, who listen to the advice of experts, and they don't have the same problems that we're having. Mm -hmm. I do think that if we don't fill the the hole in the bottom of the boat, which is not spending enough on education, not paying teachers well enough, not giving people access to health care, we're going to create more and more people who have reason to hate the government. And we need to reverse course fast. The, the time for austerity is not when you haven't invested enough. That's, that's when you double down. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we really need to be heavily investing in education, in programs that make people's lives better, in, in recognizing that you know, people in Missouri who are making $10.30 an hour can't afford daycare that costs $12 an hour as well as their jobs, mm-hmm. as well as their lives. It's just impossible. Um, so I, I really think if we start making those changes, you'll see a huge transition. How do you think that the Democrats' uh, rhetoric has sort of failed them in a sense? I mean, looking on, on uh, I, I was reading a Post-Dispatch article uh, last May, I believe it was, and there's this quote in there. It was coming from you. It says, we've gotten to the point where I think that Democrats have forgotten how to talk to conservatives. And I looked at the comments on that particular uh, on that particular article. and Two not with. Yeah, exactly. You read that one too, and I thought, well, okay, that could be a problem here because uh, it's not just you know talking to conservatives; it's the proverbial ninety-nine percent that feels as though you know they're being talked to and not listened to, and you know they don't call Missouri a flyover state for nothing, right? So, can you explain to our listening audience how you plan to do more listening and, and more conversing with and talking with people, especially the ones that feel that they're being ignored? Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I, I learned from that moment. Um, I, I, I think the interview was a, was a verbal interview. I, I went in the interview just for context for everyone else. I said, you know, I think we do a poor job speaking to conservatives or so, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And someone in the, in the comments said, you know, there's the problem. It should be with conservatives. And I literally spent, had a two hour call the next day with with the folks who I work with on my team in, in trying to to prepare me for for the Senate run and, and, to, mm-hmm. and to have these conversations. And we agreed vehemently, like this is about with. And, and when you look at what happens and what I've learned by by being around our state, whenever I talk with someone who is conservative or who tends to vote Republican, because I, I think that that's a better term for folks who who identify as conservative it's folks who tend to vote Republican because my, my policies are more cost are more financially conservative than Republican policies so I don't buy that um, and and most of my, my and most of these these folks who I speak with say you know I'm, I'm socially liberal but I'm fiscally conservative and so cool you know technically so am I um, I, I think that it's it's important to realize that these are very uh, financially prudent things to do to, to you know have universal health care that saves us all money and stuff like that but everyone says the same thing. They say, Spencer, I'll, I don't vote for Republicans 
or for Democrats, excuse me, because they show up once every six years and they or once every two years and they say you're you're voting against your own interests. And you know what, Spencer, you know what I hear? I hear, you know what, John, you're you're too dumb to know what's good for you. And 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 I hear the same thing every single time they say. And I'm so tired of these liberal elites telling me that they know better what's better for me than I do, that I'd rather vote for someone else than someone who thinks I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I've been doing is I've been spending my time with folks from all backgrounds and I'm listening. And, and I did essentially a listening circuit. I, I've been all around the state just speaking with people and hearing what their frustrations are. And that's what, that's what really engaged me the most to realize we all have the same problems, whether you're in rural Missouri or you're in a city or it doesn't matter. You're, you're struggling because you're worried about the education your kids are getting. You're worried about paying your bills. You're worried about the environment, whether it's because of erosion on the farm or drought or asthma in the cities and, and excessive heat in the cities, which is tied to having more pavement around you versus you know things that absorb heat more. Like, it's the same problems. We're, we're, we just discuss them differently, and there's there's a vacuum of some of the same of some of our voices in in different areas. Okay. That's good. You hit upon rural Missouri because I was going to ask a question about that. I was going to shift gears here a bit uh, and talk about healthcare because it, I'll start with a specific example. Uh, nationwide, healthcare-wise, nationwide, since 2010, we've seen 138 rural hospitals closing, and eight of which are in Missouri itself. And this is according to the Cecil G. Sheps Center for Health Services Research at UNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So I can't help thinking that the health care of our, the health of our rural population is at significant risk when rural hospitals close their doors. Yet, you know, when it comes time to fixing health care, whether it's rural hospitals or, you know, just some guy that needs insulin to survive, these types of discussions are often met with accusations of socialism and in some cases, communism and Marxism. And these, these rhetorical accusations they play well for the Republican base, for the, I should say, the hyper-conservative Republican base. But the reality is a lot of people, especially in the rural areas, are getting hurt. So can you give us some ideas on how you might address issues in healthcare while avoiding, if possible, I don't know if it's possible to avoid the label of socialism or communism in this area? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. I mean, for, for starters, uh, we need to define socialism and communism better yeah. and, and recognize that if there's a public good that we all benefit from having, us all having it isn't socialism. In fact, there are competitive ways to keep a healthcare system in place. And, and the people who are benefiting now from the current system are insurance companies, not us. And, and so I think it's important to show people this is where the money goes. When you're spending money, this is where it's going. It's not going from you directly to your doctor. It's being... It's being cut, it's being sheared time and time again before it gets there to the point where we've got doctors in, in student debt that, are, that have been practicing for 15 years. And we, we should be incentivizing medical professionals to, to help our lives be better. Um, and, and so I think part one is, is, is that, is showing where the money is going. Part two is stop talking about things in these rhetorical terms let's 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 stop and and you you got to recognize that when when there aren't democratic voices in rural communities 
the voices that are being heard are the voices of the people who represent those communities and the people who represent those communities stay in power by making people feel like they're the only solution that those people have. You will, you will, if you watch, you know, great examples, Jason Smith, um, watch Jason Smith's Twitter feed. Not Jason Smith doesn't believe a single thing in his Twitter feed, but he knows that it keeps him in power. And so if you, if you actually look at the motivation and where the money's coming that funds these campaigns, and if we actually just expose what's actually going on, it's pretty obvious because when someone has a stroke, they don't want to drive an extra 90 minutes to a hospital. We're not having that conversation in a public environment currently. It's being had behind closed doors. People are saying, hey, you know, that, that hospital down the street isn't there. I'm going to have to go into the city or you know, Governor Parson was so proud that we were able to medevac a lot of people across the state. Like, that's not something to be proud of. In yeah. uh, other countries, this isn't normal. And I think like, having, I think that's incredibly important. I, I, a lot of people in Missouri have spent a lot of their life in Missouri or in America, and that's awesome. But having friends in other countries who, who call me and say, Spencer, I can't believe this is happening there. You're, I mean, this, this is third world country esque. We you shouldn't be spending, you know, thirty six times the cost of an insulin of what of what another country spends. You shouldn't be, uh, you know, you, yeah. we shouldn't be short on COVID uh, tests right now, and, and we shouldn't be denying science. And so, we need to get out into communities and have those real conversations because it's really just a lack of our voice being being present that I think has caused a lot of this, and people are hurting. I, I have a friend, my parents have a farm out in the country between Washington and Union. And one of our neighbors out there fell off a horse and broke his wrist. And he went to a vet to have his wrist set because he didn't want to pay for a, a doctor's visit. That's not normal. And he's, I said, why would you do that? And he said, because I called my dad and he said that that was the best place to go. And wow. that's, that, that's a real problem. Um, now, he married the vet, which is a kind of a spin that makes that story a little, a a little less fall. dire. Um, but it, but it's not normal. And we need to stop normalizing things that, that are more likely to occur in a third world country than should be occurring in the wealthiest country on earth. Okay. And just for reference, Jason Smith is actually the U.S. representative representing the 8th district in Missouri, I believe, and governor. The, the 13th most impoverished district in the country. I didn't realize that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I follow his Twitter feed too. I always give him a hard time on his Twitter feed. Twenty-three percent, twenty-three percent of the people in his district are in poverty. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and uh, you're also referred to uh, Governor Parson, Missouri Governor Parson, medevacking people. Uh, I, I saw that news release he had. He actually bragged about the fact that he was able to medevac people who had severe COVID symptoms and didn't have room in their hospitals near. I think this was near Springfield, Missouri. And he's proud of the fact that he was able to medevac them out to the larger cities. And I said, that's, that's kind of like, um, that's, that's being proud of something that's really kind of embarrassing in a sense. Yeah. I, I cut off my hands and I'm the person with the fewest number of fingers. Like yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. get it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's, uh, let's move on to the economy. You mentioned the economy earlier and you stated in your platform that we need to create a society in which people are spending time with their families and not working two or three jobs to afford their next meal. You know, the reality is that a small overall, a small, a fairly small percentage of people overall are, are, are working multiple jobs to make ends meet. But I get your point. Can you share some of your ideas on how to address the issues in our economy? 
Yeah, so thank, thank you for that question as well. I think while a lot of people may not be working two or three jobs, a lot of people have less money than they need to pay their bills or to live quality lives or to, or to have the energy to read books to their kids at night. Uh, one of the things that comes up often is, you know, Spencer, this isn't about these schools being bad because, uh, you know, the teachers are underpaid. This is because the parents, the parents aren't reading books to their kids at night. And I've spoken with the parents who say that they haven't had time to read books to their kids at night. And they say, when you're making $10 an hour and you have two kids and you have to afford daycare or you and your spouse work and you don't have family in the area or one of you stays home and you still have to do the grocery shopping and bathe everyone and cook meals and live your life and try to just keep your head above water, it's impossible. And so part one is we just need to raise wages. This is, this is silly and this is stupid and this shouldn't even be a discussion when you've got someone spending over $40 million to go to space on a joyride and you've got people who can't afford to pay their bills, we have a very clear value system of priorities in terms of how we're taxing and how we're spending our money. Uh, in that vein, Bernie Sanders had a, a study performed a, a little while back, I wanna say it was probably eight months ago, uh, on who the recipients were of welfare, who was on food stamps, who was getting mm -hmm. Medicaid, and 5% of all people who are getting SNAP benefits currently, who are getting uh, food stamps, currently work at McDonald's or Walmart. Hmm. So, so what's happening? We, we as taxpayers are paying for these people's food and health care because their employers won't, because they want to pass more money on to their shareholders. Now, notice what's missing there. It's not making their, th their, their goods cheaper. It's not, we're not getting cheaper hamburgers at McDonald's because of that, which we know because Denmark has a $22 minimum wage and their hamburger costs 63 cents less than ours at McDonald's, their Big Mac. And so it, it ends up being shareholder value. It ends up being people who are owning McDonald's and, and Walmart in stock that are holding their, their stock for long-term capital gains. So they're paying less taxes on it when they actually pay taxes on it, if they ever sell. And, and at the same time, middle America is paying for these people to be able to afford food and to be able to afford healthcare. And that's not okay. This, this is very simple. Uh, we need to pay people better if people are working a full-time job that is a full-time job, they need to get health insurance regardless, if we aren't going to go with Medicare for all, which is the obvious answer in this in this point. And, and then we just need to make sure that everyone's able to spend more time with their families. And you do that by paying them better. And, and yeah. it's not going to lead to inflation that we, we've proven that wrong. That's a talking point. And if it did lead to inflation, people would have more money to pay for things anyway, because they'd be working. I think we have this belief that if things are more expensive uh, and people are making more money, that's that's always a bad thing. But if people are making more money, they can afford more stuff, even if the stuff costs a little bit more because they're working, you know, 2000 hours a year. And all of a sudden, I mean, we're not going to have burgers that are unaffordable right now. Burgers are unaffordable. If you're if you're making 10 bucks an hour in a McDonald's burgers, I don't know, like almost five dollars or a meal, six bucks. You have to work two hours to feed your family of four, three hours for, for, for one meal. Mm -hmm. like, so your entire day goes to feeding your family fast food. And so you, you look at why we have such an epidemic of, of diabetes and, and why our society is so overweight. The cheapest calories 
are are really unhealthy. Yeah. Uh, we have food deserts, and so people go to the fastest place they can eat, and it's it's these calorie bombs, and 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 it doesn't work. It's it's really unhealthy. So I think it, it kind of all you know it tumbles down. Um, I, I, I think there's one other thing that I think is a, a strong policy that I, I really want to make sure we touch on. And it's that infant care needs to be free or affordable. If, if we don't get to a point where pre-K education is at least affordable, but probably even free, we aren't going to have any type of population growth. And we have, we have disincentivized people from having families so, 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 so much that I can tell you almost every one of my friends, almost any person that I know has had the conversation, do we want to have kids? Can we afford to have kids? And, and, and many of them have said, we're not going to have kids. And that's really, really bad for our society. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, you, you look at what it costs to send, send a child through daycare and it's not affordable for many people, particularly as wages don't increase. And as regulations which belong there are in place. So for instance, at, at most preschools in, in Missouri, there's something like a four to one ratio for, for newborns to be in the room. So if, if you're paying, you know, someone to, to run a, a nursery school or a daycare and the individuals in the room can only watch four kids and, and they have to cover, you have to cover their salary plus overhead, plus everything else you're going to be in a position where you either can't afford to pay people or people can't afford to send their kids there. And so we need to address this as a public good as well. In my opinion, we have to recognize that it's really good for society for people to have children. And if we don't, if we don't make it easier for people to have children, we're going to be in a really bad spot and we need to start thinking about that soon. So that that's kind of an uphill battle though, because every time these issues come up with minimum wage, increasing minimum wage or having uh, you know free free or and or affordable daycare for uh, for children, this you know that 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 label comes up again, you know Marxism, communism, socialism, whatever. That's an uphill battle. Do you see any uh, any traction being gained right now even before you get into the Senate? Yeah, I think you know I think. Andrew Yang did some amazing work in informing people about universal basic income. And there are elements of universal basic income that are very appealing. There are obvious drawbacks that a lot of people don't like, and they're not worth discussing or arguing now because universal basic income, I don't think is, is going to be possible in the near future. And so it isn't really worth being overly aggressive in, in a conversation about that. But I think that a lot of people recognize that if you don't have money, you don't have the ability to have mobility. You're, you're stuck into a situation that isn't healthy for you. And so you see a lot of people in abusive relationships that would love to be out of those abusive relationships, but can't afford to leave. You see a lot of people who uh, would love to, to work for a living, but can't afford to work for a living because it costs too much to take care of their kids for them to work. And I think that the more and more we kind of squeeze sand out of this lemon, for the for the benefit of the ultra ultra rich, we're going to find that there are more and more people who are interested in those folks paying their fair share and us reaping some of the reward. And that that isn't specifically redistribution of wealth. That's saying that there are things that in a functional society we need, and we haven't taxed people appropriately for a very 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 long time. Mm-hmm. And we've actually given people back money when we probably should not have given people back money. And and it's probably time to lower taxes on middle class and and low income folks and substantially raise it on a marginal rate 
for for the ultra wealthy. I mean, the, the, this isn't saying that someone making you know fifty million dollars can't make more money. It's saying that every additional dollar they make over fifty million dollars, more of that should go towards making sure that we have a functional society. And and most of these things are really good for those people too, but they don't always recognize that or they don't want to share that wealth. And so I think that you would find that there are companies that won't exist in 20 years if we don't have children that service those industries, that those people who own those businesses would probably love to have there be a few more 20-year-olds alive in 20 years. They don't have that kind of foresight. And it's the government's responsibility to say, hey, you know, we're not going to have 20-year-olds in 20 years if we keep doing this. And if we're going to create a world in which we all get to live together, it probably makes sense to evaluate whether or not these are policies that make sense. And, and to me, the barometer is, is always, can, can we afford it? Is it fair? And does it make lives better? And so you, you look at, you know, you, you, you made it a perfect interlude because you told, you told me about the, the rural hospitals that have been shut down, which is something I study regularly. I can tell you where those things are on a map, but you also have to realize that we're at four day school weeks now in 20% of, of Missouri public schools. So 20% of the school districts in Missouri are sending kids to school for four days a week. And some people are saying it's really good because on the fifth day they're getting extra help or they're doing, they're working from home or they're working on their prop, their farm. That, that isn't real. Mm-hmm. Um, children in other countries are going five days a week and their parents are working four days a week because they've found that efficiencies of it at work actually go up if you work a four-day work week and spend more time with your family. Hmm. And so our quality of life is getting worse. The amount of time we're spending with our family is is more challenging because I don't know how if I was if if my kid was going to school four days a week, I would balance my life off of that. I mean, it's been such a challenge when we've had like COVID scares around here and we and we can't get daycare or we can't get someone to watch our son when we're both working. Like it's, it's impossible. I can't imagine if every Friday we had to figure out, you know, one day a week childcare, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't make sense. And, and so it's really hard and it puts pressures on a society where if we actually valued public education with our tax dollars, we wouldn't have $2 billion sitting in reserve in, in Mike Parsons treasury. We, we would be spending it on education and making sure teachers were paid well and kids were well nutri- were filled with nutrients at school and learning as much as humanly possible for five days a week. Yeah. Yeah, I've um, you've hit upon so many different topics. I have so many notes written down here. I'm like, okay, which one do I pick on the to, to, to chat about? But uh, education, which is what you just ended with right there, is, is, a, is a key topic. I'd, I'd, um, I'd love to get into it, but I just don't think we're going to have that much time. But um, I'll come back. No, absolutely. Okay, because I yeah, I, we talked to uh, uh, Jessica Piper too, who's an educator, and she's running for the first district in uh, in uh, state district in Missouri, and uh, she's got that topic pretty well covered. Um, I'm just learning so much from her. Um, well, let's talk about something else. We, we, you hit upon voting rights before, and I, I said I was going to circle back to that, and I really want to do that uh, in your platform. You talk about voting rights, and. Indeed, we do not have what I would call a functioning two-party system, especially when you factor in the things you mentioned before, like gerrymandering, um, voter suppression, uh, corporate influence. Uh, so in your, in your website, you talk about structural reform, but what does that look like to you insofar as voting rights are concerned? Yeah, it's, it's H.R. 1, John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's for the People Act. 
you have to recognize that if politicians were actually representing us, when things happened that we didn't like, they would lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen currently. And so it comes down to accountability again. And I, and I use Jim Jordan's district for this in examples, because if you look at Jim's, Jim Jordan's district, and maybe you can, you know, put it up in the, in, in the chat about this or something on your website, but it, it's not a normal shape. And so the only person who can win that district currently is Jim Jordan. And the only person who can never lose that district currently is Jim Jordan. And so what we end up getting is policies that are just whatever Jim Jordan's donors want. Mm -hmm. And those donors don't even necessarily have to come from his district. And so we, we need to get Citizens United overturned and we need to get rid of gerrymandering. We need to get rid of voter suppression. And it all comes together with, with these bills that are already proposed and ready to go. I firmly believe that the core of a democracy is having accountability and having every vote count. Mm -hmm. And we're currently in a position in part because we failed people so miserably that people don't think their votes matter even when they do vote because they don't have accountable politicians on the other end. Yeah. I mean, how many times, I mean, you're, I, I, I know how politically active you are, but you know the misery of sending an email or a letter and knowing that it's going to end up in a trash bin and the senator or the House of Representatives uh, congressman or woman isn't going to ever see that letter. And that's stupid. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. And in a state like Missouri, where there's only 6 million people compared to a state like California, you should have a pretty good idea of who's representing you and you should know what they're doing that's making your life better. And I think very few people can actually say, I know who my person is and I know how they're making their life, my life better. I, I feel fortunate there. I'm in Corey Bush's district here in St. Louis. And I think there are a lot of things that she's done that are very positive. I think there are things that she's said and done that, that I don't agree with as much. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and I think that's one of the challenges really that's facing a two-party system now is people want to throw you in a bucket. Yeah. And there aren't two buckets of people. There's like a huge spectrum of people and no one is the same as everyone else, but no one wants to, it's much easier just to say I'm a X, Y, or Z than it is to say, here's a, here's a lot that you have to read through to really understand me. But we live in a society where we need to be doing that. And I, I think that it's really important that, that the accountability comes back and, and transparency comes back. And I don't think we're anywhere near that point right now. And we will need those structural reforms where people can lose their job. I mean, we shouldn't have people in office for life with the changes that go on and the, the things that people vote for and against that, that have changed over time. Mm -hmm. No one's held to their voting record anymore. It, it doesn't make any sense. And these, these folks who go, go and become Congress people or, or senators Somehow they're millionaires now, but they came into office with no money and, and we know what they make. So like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And, and it, it's just gross. I, I think that most people are sick of it. Uh, like political wonks like you and me, like are reading through every word, but most people have tuned out almost everything. It, yeah. it is amazing how often I talk to someone and they say, when's the election? What are you running for? Is that district wide or statewide? Who else are you running against? And I'm sitting here reading every word of everything that everyone has ever said thinking that every, everyone's hanging on every word and they're not. People are exhausted and they're trying to get by with their own lives and they just want accountability in their voice to count. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, you, you've, you've hit upon something. I, I, looked, I, I was able to talk to Lee Drutman some time ago. He's a political scientist and he has his own podcast as well. And, and he pointed at the necessity of political parties because people do want to get to the simple answer. If you say, 
I'm with the Democratic Party, people sort of paint you in that corner. And more so these days because the parties have become so stratified. Uh, but uh, that, that's an interesting thing. Something else you mentioned, too, is Citizens United. In fact, I was going to ask you specifically about that. Uh, in order to overturn Citizens United, which is a Supreme Court decision back in 2010 that essentially gave corporations First Amendment rights and said, basically, you can infinitely fund your political messages as a matter of free speech. That's uh, That precedent is going to be really hard to overturn, but there is a movement out there from a, a group called Move to Amend and they are uh, pushing for a, a constitutional amendment. I believe it would be Amendment Number Twenty Eight. How would you do that? I mean, you talk about overturning Citizens United. Would that, would it, in your opinion, require a uh, constitutional amendment? And if that's the case, would that get your support? If it took an amendment to do it, it would get my support. Uh, if there were other ways to do it, it would get my support. If any way to do it will have my support. I can tell you right now, as someone who did not have a lot of political connections and is running for office, I'm mostly self-funded to date, and mm -hmm. I don't like that. But I also know that if I wasn't mostly self-funded to date, I couldn't compete. Yeah. And there, there are a couple huge problems with, with this entire mechanism. One, there isn't enough money in Missouri to win the Missouri Senate seat, period. And so... There are different avenues that you can take strategically to raise money, especially if you're not going to take corporate donations. Mm -hmm. You can work with other PACs. You can have other Senate candidates give you money. You can advertise out of state. But ultimately, if, if I'm maxed out at $5,800 per couple or $2,900 per person, I, I could talk to everyone who's ever donated in Missouri a nickel, and I wouldn't raise enough money to win the state, even if they all maxed out. And, and so it becomes a question of what are we doing with our time when we campaign and how does that relate to what we're doing once we're in office? And so personally, I haven't felt comfortable previously asking too many people for money because I, I can tell them what I believe, but I haven't been able to show them that because I wasn't an activist in the community. I wasn't, I, I was, I was running businesses. I thought that the best way for me to, to provide value to society was to do well in business and then through philanthropy and charity and influencing politics to make that change. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's possible anymore. I, I, while those are very important things and I, I admire people who do that, I saw an opportunity right now to get voting rights acts passed. And the only place to do that was from winning the Senate seat. Yeah. And so that that is my focus there. But, but to your point, uh, if we don't get the money out of politics and we don't create some sort of public financing of that to give people an opportunity, incumbents will always have their voice loudest uh, and and folks who can either self-fund or are tied to tons of money or who take corporate donations will always beat the underdog. Um, it's very hard to catch lightning in a bottle, particularly with sane reasoning. And this is a really important point that, that I, you, you haven't asked about yet, but I really think that you may want to dig deeper on and potentially, you know, focus a show on, but the, the channels in which someone can get their name out and their values currently are not the same as they've ever been in the past. And the incentives and, and systems around uh, the dissemination of information have changed drastically. So Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok promote engagement um, because they want more advertisers, you just see more advertisers' eyes. 
And so when you shoot for engagement there, if you're not saying something outlandish, it kind of gets buried. And so there's this incentive for people to say outlandish things and do things that are extreme because they need to raise the money out of state and they need to catch those eyes so they can get on TV and they can do all of these things. And that's really bad for society. We need calmer heads to prevail. And, but you can't get your voice out as a calmer head. Like personally, the Post-Dispatch has turned down two op-eds from me and said that they don't want to publish op-eds because from candidates because it's a slippery slope to publish candidates' op-eds. And I would say that it's a slippery slope to not know what the people believe who you're voting for. Yeah, that seems kind of like a weak argument on the on the Post-Dispatch's perspective there because they, they publish stuff all the time and newspapers across the country publish op-eds from people who yeah. are campaigning. And the Kansas City Star published one of the op-eds that the Post-Dispatch said they weren't interested in publishing. But if we're if our goal is disseminating as much information as possible so people can make educated decisions, our resources are limited in doing that. And, and everything promotes extremism. Yeah. And so we need to find out a better way to communicate with people in a way that resonates in in a in an understanding tone, in a in an empathetic world that isn't just based on how many advertisements you're going to sell or if you're going to end up on TV. And right now we're not doing that. I was going to ask you about that too. And by the way, that's a great suggestion. I'd love to do a show on on the channels that uh, campaigners can use to uh, get the word out there, because I think you're right. It does end up being extremist. Uh, you do have a lot of extreme rhetoric going out there to get people's attention but part of that problem is the fact that they have to get that attention in order to motivate people to vote, not in the general, but in the primary, because the fix is in, as you mentioned, like in Jim Jordan's district, the fix is in and with, with gerrymandering. Now, you're you're different because you're over the whole state. But uh, in those situations where you're already uh, your party is already almost guaranteed to win, uh, you have to be extreme in order to motivate people your base basically to vote in uh, in the primary. And so I was going to ask you about that because um, ranked choice voting is uh, one potential uh, mitigation technique. Another one is what we would call top five primaries where you vote for a group of people, you vote for everybody. So anybody can go to the polls and vote in the primaries for anybody else. They take the top five winners of the primary. They can even all be in the same party, but they all go to the general election. So what are your ideas about those kind of concepts to help fix the system? I think, I think ranked choice voting is a very positive thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm a supporter. I think it was helpful in the mayoral election in the city of St. Louis this, this past time through. We, we had a form of preferential uh, ballots. I think that was good in the primary. I think that there's so much need to look at who is voting and how those votes are counted. The most important thing to me is to recognize that there are 30 to 35% of Missourians who don't vote. Mm -hmm. And those people have needs too. And so the best thing we can do is find ways to engage with more people and, and find out what they want. And I think that that would make a very clear uh, choice usually most likely uh, in, in an election process. But out after that, yeah, I'm, I'd love to see ranked choice voting. I, I think that the most beautiful thing about our constitution is it's built to be able to improve over time. Mm-hmm. And we need to realize that we can iterate. If, if something doesn't work, we can change it a little the next time. We can fix things a little bit more. We don't have to say, you know, it, we made this change and it's completely irreversible forever. And now we're a communist country. 
no, like we'll improve. What, what in our life is this black and white? And we just, because we're two parties and one wants to say one thing and one wants to say another, doesn't mean that that's how it will end up. Like we, right. we can, we can iterate and improve and, and there's, there's no business, there's no nonprofit, there's no government ever that hasn't tried to do something different over time when it's failed. And I think it's, it's really unfortunate that we think, oh, well, we can't get the exact right climate plan. So we're just not going to address climate change. Yeah. And we, we can't figure out the exact right healthcare system that gives everyone healthcare, but we're not going to start by just giving everyone healthcare. Why wouldn't we? Like, why would we start with a healthcare system that only the wealthy can afford healthcare um, or, or the employed? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we need to get more comfortable with is adapting and realizing that the world is not certain. And we need to make changes that, that are based on research and science and that mimic what other countries have done that have been successful and then bring those policies here and see how they work and tweak them to our culture and our way of living. So very quickly, uh, I know we're kind of coming up on the end of our time here, but uh, you hit upon a few concepts which got me thinking about three words, Green New Deal. I don't know if a lot of people have actually read the Green New Deal uh, bill itself. A lot of people think it's like a 100-page document or something. It's actually uh, something you can read in about 10 minutes. Um but it's, I'm going to ask you what your opinion is of it, and I have to be very careful because if you say you're for it, that means you're going to take all of it. I mean, there's a lot of uh, green stuff in there, of course, but there's a lot of stuff that seems only peripherally related to it, such as you know, e- equality, collective bargaining, uh, indigenous rights, support for minimum wage, family farming, high-speed rail. I mean, this, all these concepts are things we've already talked about in our conversation here. But the Green New Deal tries to wrap it all up and uh, in, in a, into one big package. Paul Krugman, who is an economist and columnist, you probably know him, he describes it as a Christmas tree of ideas festooned with lots of riders unrelated to the ostensible purpose in order to win political support. So uh, with all that in mind, um, what is your opinion of the Green New Deal? And do you, in fact, support it? Or would you rather just um, uh, su- do you support the whole Christmas tree? Or would you rather just pluck off a few ornaments? If you told me that the only way we could pass climate change legislation is the Green New Deal, I would wholeheartedly support the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. If you said, hey, Spencer, what does your perfect package look like? There are probably some differences. I, I honestly cannot think of any amount of money that we could possibly spend on fixing our climate that is enough. Um, like I don't have the ability to fathom a number big enough. And when I think about the way we use, for instance, our military, I think that we would be doing a much better public service to the safety of our society going forward to have people planting trees every day and to have people cleaning up trash in India and to be to be cleaning water and, and investing money in carbon capture technology. Um, these are things that are natural disasters waiting to happen or currently happening. It's not normal for New York to flood while Oregon's on fire. And it's just not normal. And we've, I use this, this terminology a lot, like boiling a frog. If you've ever heard that analogy, if you, if you toss a frog into boiling hot water, it jumps out. But if you put it in the pot of water before you boil it and you turn up the heat, it'll boil to death. And that's what's happening in the world right now. And literally, I mean, we are literally boiling to death and it's happening at a rate of return, a rate of, a rate of, uh, well, cadence such that it will be too late if we don't start immediately. Mm -hmm. And so I want to, I think that after high school or 
uh, or or upon upon your 18th birthday, you should go on into the climate corps for a year, and and we should have a, a you know a community based organization like Peace Corps that that brings people together from different communities. Because one of the things that I hate most about our society is that we get so stuck in our in our bubbles that we never speak with people who aren't like us. And I think if every 17, 18, 19 year old coming out of their senior year of high school was cleaning up trash and planting trees and, and engineering, you know, carbon capture technology with someone who, who had a completely different background, we'd be a whole hell of a lot better. Uh, And and so I I think there's so many different elements that play into this. I think, you know, Missouri has a, a plethora of wind. We are one of the, the, most prominent wind generating states in the country, but we don't spend nearly enough investing in windmills and, and renewable energy. I think that would be incredible. What, mm-hmm. what a great way to help our our rural communities and by letting a farmer have twelve to $18,000 worth of additional income because we put a we, we have a, uh, a windmill. And that's the average amount that they would make based on the average size farm in Northwest Missouri right now. I mean, go to farms in Northwest Missouri and say, hey, would you like another $18,000 a year? All you have to do is have a windmill on your property and a small land lease. Yeah. And, and those are going to be serviced locally that we can manufacture in our state. It's a huge win. Yeah. Uh, and then you look at agriculture. So much of agriculture now is done uh, in a connected world it, through Internet of Things. And we aren't competitive in agriculture in how we're currently working our crops because most of the other countries don't have people on the tilling equipment anymore. It's all done by GPS. And we don't even have cell reception at these farms. So how are we going to have GPS? So we should really be investing in that kind of technology. And I think satellite technology for that use is, is going to be much faster and more effective than digging trenches for, for uh, broadband. And, but we need to be having those conversations and we need to be, you know, really speeding up this process. Um, I I really believe in vertical farming. I think that vertical farming would be great for our environment and and Missouri. I mean, St. Louis alone has a 1.4 million square foot building the AT&T tower that would be absolutely phenomenal for vertical farming. We should be incentivizing that. Yeah. Very pragmatic answer. I like that. Uh, last question here is to uh, what I call the call to action portion. What can people do to support your efforts on the path to the U.S. Senate? Thank you. Um, hosting it together. Put on a Zoom for me and your friends. Uh, I, I'd be happy to, to talk with anyone. If you go to my website and you click the floating head in the corner, it starts a conversation with me and I respond to the conversations through video every morning. I try to be as approachable as possible and in the time that I have, I try to spend it with as many Missourians as possible and make sure that that we're getting the, the, the message across and that I'm listening to as many people as possible. If you see me somewhere, say hi. If you got some extra cash, put out a $5 recurring donation, put out a $10 recurring donation monthly. It, it helps uh, make sure that I can afford the things that we're trying to do. And, and these things are trying to help the community. They're trying to build trust. They're trying to make people's lives better. So it's not like it's all going to a Facebook ad. It's it's going to help people okay. uh, in your community. Um, okay. And then sign up to volunteer. We, we already have 25 volunteers signed up uh, throughout the state where we're finding great ways to engage these people, whether it's, you know, tabling it at a, at a, at a fair or whether it's helping spread the word that we're doing a food drive. I mean, there, there are plenty of ways to get involved. So I would say, whatever it is, find a way to connect. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Spencer Toter or on Instagram, Spencer for Senate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Spencer Toter for Senate, I think. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm, I spend a decent amount of time on Twitter, making sure that I'm 
hearing the voices of people in the community. So follow me, DM me. I respond personally. Anything you want to do. I'm, I'm, I, I want to make sure that I'm all y'all's voice in, in D.C. And okay. so if you, if you have a voice and opinion, just make sure I know it. And I can testify uh, directly that you and I got a hold of through Twitter. You, uh, we would DM back and forth. And so I know that you're answering all of your, uh, your messages there. And uh, your yeah. website is spencertoder.com. It's S-P-E-N, sorry, S-P-E-N-C-E-R-T-O-D-E-R.com. All one word. Good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've been talking with Spencer Toder, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate from Missouri. Spencer, thank you for joining us today. I wish you good luck, lots of success in your campaign for U.S. Senate. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also contact our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you'd like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in for our next episode.